I have the, the distinct honor this morning of introducing our speaker, Dr. George Murray. As with all of us, there is much more to know and appreciate about him than I can capture in a brief introduction. And though he's known for all sorts of things, he prefers to be known primarily for his involvement in world missions. With his four children, he did church planting in Italy for 13 years and, led, and then led two mission agencies for 17 years before coming to CIU as president in 2000. Now serving as the CIU chancellor, he, along with his wife Annette, see their primary role as, change, as training the next generation of great commission leaders. He's been in 75 countries, coaching and encouraging missionaries all over the world. He likes to read, hike, play tennis, and really early in the morning go fishing for bass. So, Dr. Murray, would you please come and share with us this morning? Just in case you didn't know, Sam is my nephew-in-law. <laughs> it's a delight to be here this morning again at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, not only to preach God's word, but also to represent Columbia International University. I have a friend who lives in Pennsylvania. I called him on the phone. I got his answering machine, and this is what it said. You've reached the machine. You know the routine. Beep. Well, all I can say to you is, you have the knowledge. Send your kids to our college. <laughs> and if you want to find out more about Columbia International University, right out these doors, there is a table with information about our college, our graduate school, and our seminary, as well as two powerful booklets written by Dr. Robertson McQuilkin that I brought with me today. They're free, and if you want to take one, please go by and help yourself to that. Our theme for this missions conference is Mighty Lord, Extend Your Kingdom. And I'm here this morning to tell you He is. He is extending His kingdom. Our theme is a prayer. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom. He is answering that prayer. He is extending his kingdom. Now before we look at the text in God's word this morning, I have good news and bad news for you. First, the good news. The good news is that the percentage of people in the entire world who claim to be personal followers of Jesus Christ has grown from 3% of the total world population to over 12% of the total world population in my lifetime. In 1945, the year that I was born, and now you know how old I am, there were 80 million people in the entire world who claimed to be personal followers of Jesus Christ. Today, in the year 2011, there are over 800 million true believers in Jesus Christ. That's a growth of 3% to over 12% of the total world population in my lifetime. And the number continues to grow. And the percentage continues to grow. Just a year ago, I was in Egypt. 
meeting quietly out in the desert between Cairo and Alexandria with 600 young adult Egyptian followers of Christ, all of them gathered for eight days to pray and seek God's will about how they could become personally involved as missionaries of the gospel throughout North Africa and the Middle East. How awesome is that? We have good news this morning. We are living in the most unprecedented time of spiritual harvesting that the world has ever known. That's the good news. Now the bad news. The bad news is that nine out of every ten people living in the world today are lost, spiritually lost, and outside of personal faith in Jesus Christ. You say, wait a minute, Dr. Murray. You just told us a minute ago that there were over 800 million believers. That's right, but there's 6.8 billion people in the world. And if you do the math, that means one out of ten knows the Lord, nine out of ten do not. That's the bad news. Moreover, two out of every three people living in the world not only are lost, but have never once heard a clear explanation of the gospel. No one has ever told them how they can be saved through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Two out of every three people living in the world today. And one out of every three people living in the world today. How many people would that be, by the way? Over two billion people, one out of every three, not only are lost, not only have never once heard a clear explanation of the gospel, but one out of every three people living in the world right now has no one living near them who can tell them about Jesus even if they want to hear. So we come back to our theme, Mighty Lord, Extend Your Kingdom. And I want to give you the title of our message this morning, which is, Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done. Who said that? Jesus did in the prayer he taught us to pray. Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done. For His Kingdom to come, His will must be done. And when His will is done, his kingdom will come. So I want you to look with me in your Bibles this morning at the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17. You can follow the words in your Bible or see the words on the screen. Ephesians 5, 17, where we read these words. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I wonder how many people here this morning have said something like this in the course of your Christian life. I just want God's will for my life, or I'm just asking God to show me his will, or I just want to be in the center of God's will. How many of you have said something like that? Would you put your hands up, please? All right, I expected to see a lot of hands. Now, what did you mean by that when you said that? Well, I'll tell you what most people mean. Most people mean when they're asking about God's will for their life, they're, they're meaning, uh, should I go to college or should I go right into the workforce? And if I go to college, should I go to a Christian school or a secular university? And what should my major be? 
Should I stay single or get married? And if I marry, who should I marry? And then when I finish my training, should I go into the marketplace or should I go into ministry? And if I go into ministry, should I do that here or somewhere else in the world? And if you're part of the older set here this morning, you may be asking questions like, should I have that operation or shouldn't I? Should we live near the kids? Should I embark on a second career? Should I still work and earn money or live on my savings? Should we own our house or move into a retirement center? These are all real questions that all of us ask and we should ask and they're important questions. But I want to go much deeper this morning because all the questions that I just mentioned to you are what I call superstructural questions. I want to talk this morning about the foundation, the foundation upon which all of these superstructural questions can be asked and answered. So look at the verse again, and I've highlighted the word understand. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The reason why we are emphasizing this word understand is because this verb in the Greek language is in the imperative mode. Do you remember your English? Indicative mode, imperative mode. Let me give you an example of a verb in the indicative mode. You go to Starbucks every day. The word go here is in the indicative mode. Now look at this sentence. Go to Starbucks right now. The word go here is in the imperative mode. So look at the verse again. Do not be unwise, but understand. The word understand here is a command. Understand what the will of the Lord is. This is not something we might do. This is something we must do. This is not an option. This is an obligation. We are commanded to understand the Lord's will for our lives. So here's my question for you this morning. Do you understand God's will for your life? And why is that an important question? Because Ephesians 5.17 tells us that we must understand it. We're commanded to understand it. Now, the Bible talks a lot about God's will. It really does. And I want to give you a couple examples from a much longer list of verses in the Bible that talk about God's will. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. You'll see the words on the screen. Paul, the missionary apostle Paul, is writing to people that he has led to Christ, formed them into a church. Now he's writing back to them and he says, I am asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. What was he meaning when he prayed that? Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus is speaking and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. That's a scary verse. What did David mean in Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, when he said, I delight to do your will Oh, my God, there may be somebody here this morning at St. Andrews, and you're saying, boy, I wish I could write that. I mean, if I only knew what God's will was for my life, I think I'd delight to do it. So here's the question. 
what is the will of God? And why is this important? Because it's directly connected with the extension of his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What is the will of God? And I want to tell you just for a minute what I used to think. I used to think that God's will for my life was something that he wrote down on a piece of paper with my name at the top. And then he took that piece of paper and he put it in a manila file folder with my name on the tab. And then he took that manila file folder and he filed it away in a heavenly filing cabinet. He closed the drawer. He locked the cabinet. Then he left the room in which the cabinet is located, locking the door. And I am on the outside. And if I pray hard enough and live right enough and ask long enough, one day the Lord's going to come to me and say, all right, son, it's time to go to the room. <laughs> and we're going to go to the room and he unlocks the door because he's the only one that has the key. And as the door opens there on the far wall of this room is this enormous bank of filing cabinets. And he takes me to the M drawer. And he unlocks the cabinet and pulls the drawer out, goes back through the folders until he comes to the one with my name on it, takes it out, opens it up, shows me, and finally, I have discovered God's will for my life. Now, maybe you've never thought of it in quite those terms, but I dare say many people here this morning have a similar idea, and I'm here to tell you this morning, based on the teaching of God's word, that that is not at all what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the will of God. In fact, if you're taking notes, and I notice some people are, and I love it when people take notes because you will always remember more later. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down the next thing I'm going to say because it's probably the most important thing I'm going to say in this entire message. God's will is not something cleverly hidden that we are challenged to discover. God's will is not something cleverly hidden that we are challenged to discover. And then if you're writing, keep writing. God's will is something clearly revealed that we are commanded to do. God's will is not something cleverly hidden that we're challenged to discover. God's will is something clearly revealed that we are commanded to to do. So I did a study of this whole thing in the Bible, and I just broke it down, and I just took the word will, W-I-L-L, -L, and I discovered that the word will, W-I-L-L, -L, occurs in the English Bible 10,192 times. Of the 10,192 times the word W-I-L-L -L occurs in the Bible, 9,958 times it is used to indicate a simple future tense. That's the way you express the future in the English language. So after the worship service this morning, we will have lunch together. That's the way you express the future in the English language. But 234 times the word will, W-I-L-L, -L, is used in the Bible in a different way has nothing to do with the future. Sometimes it occurs as a noun. The will. Noun. The will. Sometimes it occurs as a verb. To will. This has nothing to do with the future now. Sometimes the noun 
the will is used in the Bible in terms of people. And so the Bible talks about the will of man. John chapter 1, verse 13, for example. Sometimes the noun, the will, is used in the Bible in terms of God. And so the Bible talks about the will of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, for example. Sometimes the verb to will is used in the Bible in terms of people. And so we read about Pontius Pilate. We read that Pilate, willing, verb, willing to make the people happy, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Pilate, willing to make the people happy, verb. Sometimes when we see the verb to will, it's used in the Bible in terms of God. And so we see Jesus, the son of God, meeting the man with leprosy, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, I want you to make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. This has nothing to do with the future now. This is something totally different. So what is this noun the will, and this verb, to will, mean? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary, and here's what the dictionary says. The dictionary definition of the word will is choice, desire, determination, or intention. What a person wants to do. All of us here this morning have a will. And we talk about each other in terms of our wills. Somebody says, Please pray for me. I'm a very weak-willed person. I'm slightly overweight, and every time I go past a bakery, I go in. Somebody else says, please pray for me. I'm a middle school teacher, and I've got a fourth-grade boy in my class who is extremely strong-willed, and I can't get him to do anything I ask him to do. So we talk about each other in terms of our wills. Weak-willed people, strong-willed people, all of us have a will. And to illustrate this just a little further, I need to tell you about our four children. God has uh, blessed my wife and me with four children, three girls and one boy, Heather, Laura, Frank, and Julie. Heather was our first child. Heather was a near perfect baby. Now, I'm not just saying that because I'm her dad. It really was true. She was not only beautiful, she was good. Listen, moms, she slept through the night, the first night home from the hospital, and every night subsequent to that. In the morning when she woke up, she never cried. She always played happily with herself in her bassinet or in her crib until one of us came. She went to anybody we gave her to. When, you know it's how children sort of cling to their parents. She was just social. I mean, she was so pretty, people would turn and look at her. And, and if they put their arms out, she'd put their arm out there. I mean, she was just an amazing child. In fact, 
during that period of time, my wife and I were getting ready to go to Italy as missionaries. And so we were traveling around the country, speaking in churches, asking people to help us with finances and prayer and so forth. And in two different churches that year, we were hosted by young married couples who had an extra bedroom in their house or apartment. And so they had us stay with them. And in both cases, these couples had deliberately decided to wait to have children because they were, you know, paying off school debt or whatever and, and just getting started in their marriage and they just didn't want to have kids yet. And, and we stayed with each couple. Two weeks after we stayed with each couple, they both got pregnant. <laughs> I mean, immediately. I mean, they said, if this is what it means to have a baby, we're going to start a family now. <laughs> so, I mean, this, this was Heather. And, you know, my wife and I were starting to think that we had something to do with this. <laughs> and so we thought, well, maybe we could write our first article or even a little booklet on parenting. And the Lord, knowing we were thinking that, quickly gave us Lara. <laughs> James Dobson writes books about Lara. Laura is a strong-willed child. When she decides she's going to do something, she's going to do it. And when she decides she's not going to do something, she's not going to do it. Laura was going through the not-want-to-go-to-bed stage. Do you know what I'm talking about? I find it incredible that those of us who want to can't. And those who can don't want to. And I had been away from home for two weeks on a preaching mission, and my wife Annette had fought with Laura every night. And so I need to tell you about Laura and the drink of water. Uh, Laura was using every excuse she could come up with not to go to bed, and so when I got back home after two weeks, I walked in the door, and the minute I came in, my wife looked at me and said, it's your turn. Well, I'd been thinking about it for two weeks because we'd been talking about it on the phone, you know, during those two weeks, and I had it all figured out. I let her wear her favorite nightgown. I let her have her favorite stuffed animal. I read her her favorite storybook. We sang songs together. I read her a story from the Bible. We prayed together. I took her to the potty. I gave her a drink of water. We brushed our teeth. I made sure the window in the bedroom was open slightly because I knew she liked fresh air. I made sure that the hall light was on. I made sure that the bedroom door was open so you could see the hall light on. I mean, I, I tucked her in just the way she liked. We prayed together. I hugged her. I kissed her. I mean, everything was covered. Got up from the bed, started to leave the room. She said, Daddy, yes, Laura, I'm thirsty. Uh, Laura, honey, now listen carefully. I, I already gave you a drink. You really don't need any more water, so you just put your head on the pillow, honey, go to sleep, and I'll see you in the morning. And I just kept going right out the door. Got to the door. Daddy, yes, Laura, I want a drink of water. Now, I knew this had been going on night after night, so I went over, sat down on the bed, and I said, Laura, honey, listen to me. I said, uh, I've been away for two weeks, and your mommy and I haven't even talked yet. And so, listen, honey, I'm going to get up from this bed, and I'm going to go out that door, down the hall, into the living room, 
your mommy and I are going to talk, and Laura, I don't want to hear you call. I don't want you to ask me for anything. And honey, if you do, I'm going to come back here and spank you. Very quiet. Got up from the bed, out the door, halfway down the hall. Daddy, I want a drink of water. So I went back in the bedroom, sat down on the bed, pulled the covers back, took her out of the bed, turned her over my knee on her bottom. She cried. I hugged her. I kissed her. I wiped the tears away, told her I loved her, put her back in the bed, pulled the covers up, and I said, now, Laura, honey, you know Daddy meant exactly what he said, so you put your head on the pillow, and I'll see you in the morning. <gasps> okay, Daddy. <laughs> But, Daddy, yes, Laura, can I please have a drink of water? <laughs> I gave her a drink. <laughs> um, by the way, Laura is a highly esteemed PhD professor of nutritional science at Johns Hopkins University and Penn State University, um, loves the Lord, uh, testifies in her job about her faith in Christ. What I'm saying is it's not bad to have a strong will. It just depends on whether it's in the hands of the flesh or in the hands of the spirit. But why did I tell you this? All right, now watch. You, you have a will. And I have a will. Now watch. And God has a will, and God's will is not something outside of himself, coldly written down on a piece of paper and kept under lock and key that you and I must beg him to show us. No, God's will is a warm, integral part of his immutable character. God's will is what he wants to do. So what does he want to do? Well, I'll tell you how you can find out. Using a Bible concordance, look up all the verses in the Bible that talk about the will of God or God who wills. Just do that sometime. We don't have time to do that this morning. I'm going to give you two examples as we close. But these are so powerful in terms of why we're meeting this week for our World Missions Conference. The first example is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. And if you have a Bible, I'd like you to look at that. You can also see the words on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Would you look carefully at the first seven words of this verse? For this is the will of God. My wife and I serve at CIU. We have 1,200 students there. Many of them come to us as a couple and say, would you pray with us? We're asking God to show us his will for the future. We're getting ready to graduate. We're still not sure what he wants for us. And I always take them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. I said, would you please read the first seven words of this verse? For this is the will of God. Uh, would you read that again, please? For this is the will of God. Then I look them right in the eye and I say, I don't want to be disrespectful here, but you don't have to pray about this. It's right here. Stop praying and read. This is, you want to know what the will of God is? Here it is, right here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God. Then what does it say? Your sanctification. 
your sanctification. So I want us to think just for a minute about sanctification. Why do we need to think about that? Because this is the will of God. Now, let me ask a question. How many of you here this morning on your way to St. Andrews at home as you were having coffee or whatever you do in the morning and then as you were on your way here in just regular everyday conversation with each other as family members, how many of you used the word sanctification in a sentence this morning? Okay, well, I thought there might be a couple because somebody might have been teaching a Sunday school class on it or something, but I didn't expect many hands, and that's okay. Don't feel guilty about that um, because it's not a common word, but it's an important word. Do you know why? Because it's the will of God. So we need to use this word. But if you use this word in a sentence with anybody, you better tell them what you mean because they won't know what you mean at all. So I'm going to tell you what sanctification is. And the reason I'm telling you this is because this is the will of God for your life and for mine. Sanctification is that process whereby God works in us, helping us to become less and less like we are and more and more like Jesus, becoming less and less like me in my own sinful, selfish ways and more and more like Jesus. That is the will of God for your life. His desire is that every man, woman, boy, or girl here in this room every day become more and more like Jesus. Now, we have 1,200 students on our campus. Many of them are single. They're thinking and praying seriously about a life partner. And I will say to them when they come for counsel, you know, I'm sure you have a mental list of the things you'd like to see and the person you want to marry. And I hope at the very top of that list, it says, I want to marry a man who's just like Jesus. I want to marry a woman who's just like Jesus. And what a wonderful thing to realize that God's will for my life and for your life is to make us more and more like Jesus. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to get up in the morning. I mean, to think that tonight I can be more like Jesus than I am now, and tomorrow I can be more like Jesus than I am today. Now, I know this is a Presbyterian church, and by the way, I am a member, my wife and I, my wife who's here this morning, my wife and I are members of Northeast Press, and we're involved in the Blythewood uh, church plant. And so, you know, we're, we're part of the same group, all right? So I know, I know we're Presbyterians, we're Presbyterians, but if you think it's wonderful this morning that the will of God, the clearly revealed will of God for your life is to make you more and more like Jesus every day, if you think that's wonderful, would you give me a good Baptist amen? amen. Wow, that was great. Now you said it, you said it, now watch. Sanctification involves two things, watch. First of all, it involves rejecting, rejecting all those things which do not contribute to my sanctification. Oh. Do you want to be more like Jesus? You should. Why? Because that's the will of God. Then a person who wants to be in the center of God's will, growing in their sanctification, will first of all reject all those things which do not contribute to their sanctification. Do you make conscious choices to do that every day? Let me just give you an example. When I realized that the will of God was my sanctification, it completely revolutionized my reading habits. I love to read. I, I used to read just anything came into my hands. I just read. I just love to read. I travel all the time. What do travelers do when they get on planes? Go to the bookstore, buy a book, read it, you know, pass the time, read books. I don't do that anymore. I still read, but I'm very careful about what I read. In fact, you know, uh, when we were going to Italy, a very well-meaning Christian friend sent us a book in the mail. They thought it would help us to understand Italy better. It was called The Godfather. And, um, and it was, 
you know, they figured, you know, we needed to know about the mafia and, and everything. And so I thought, well, this is cool, yeah. And so I started to read it. I was halfway through the first chapter. It was so deliberately filthy, sexually explicit, that I closed the book, threw it in the trash, and said, I will find out about Italy some other way, thank you. This is not contributing to my sanctification. Are you following me? Do you make conscious choice? It completely revolutionized my TV viewing, my movie viewing, my computer use. What do I ask myself? I ask myself, is that going to contribute to my sanctification? And if the answer is no, I reject it. Now, that's a little negative, so let's go over on the, on the other side. It's not only rejecting those things which do not contribute to your sanctification, but it's embracing those things which do. Well, what is it that makes me more like Jesus? What is it that increases my sanctification? Well, for a starter, we could go to John 17, 17. That's an easy Bible verse to remember, 17, 17 of the Gospel of John, where Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father just before he goes to the cross, and he says, Father, speaking about us, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. What is Jesus saying there in John 17, 17? He's saying that a Christian who is in the will of God is a Christian who is constantly in the word of God, reading it, researching it, relating it to every area of her, his or her life. Do you do that every day? Do you? I'm not talking about your pastor getting ready to preach. I'm not talking about one of you that's getting ready to teach a Sunday school class. I'm talking about any Christian who claims to be in the center of God's will. You know, you can be a missionary on the mission field, and I have been the director of two mission agencies. The last one had 1,200 missionaries in it. I have been in 75 countries, and I have been with many missionaries. And when they get to know me and feel safe in my presence, it's not out of the question that some of them have said to me, Dr. Murray, it's six months since I read my Bible. Missionaries. You can be on the mission field and be out of the will of God. Why? Because being in the will of God is not primarily a matter of location or vocation. It's a matter of condition of heart. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You all know this verse, but just think of what we're talking about as you look at this verse. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What's that saying? Reject those things which do not contribute to your sanctification. Now what does it say? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that mean? Embrace those things which do. Now look what it says. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So what is the will of God? God's will is the sanctification of every believer, making conscious, deliberate choices every day to reject those things which do not co contribute to my sanctification, to embrace those things which do. Now a second example, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 in your Bible. We read these words in God's holy inspired word. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if this verse isn't enough for you, let me invite you to jot in your notes 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, where we read that he wills for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So what is the will of God according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4? 
God's will is the evangelization of the entire world. Here we have it clearly stated in his word that his will, what he wants, is that every man, woman, boy, girl, living anywhere on the face of the earth has a chance to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel. He does not want anyone to be lost. He wants everyone to be saved. Now, I know not everybody's going to be saved. I know people will go to hell. But that does not change the fact that the immutable will of God is that everyone have a chance to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel. Now, if you think that's wonderful, that God's will is for everybody in the world to hear the message of Jesus that we sang about so eloquently this morning, if you think that's wonderful, would you give me another Baptist amen? amen. All right, now you said it. All right, now watch. Being in God's will involves two things. It involves vocation and it involves location. Vocation is what you do. Location is where you live or where you go. So let me ask you a question this morning, my brothers and sisters here at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. Why do you live where you live? Why do you work where you work? Why do I live where I live? I was born here. I mean, where do you want me to live, Dr. Marie? And why do I work where I work? I got a job there. I mean, the Bible says I'm supposed to, you know, take care of my family. If I don't do that, I'm worse than an infidel. Why do I work there? I put bread and butter on the table. Well, those are good reasons, but there's a deeper reason for anybody who claims to be in the will of God. We choose our location and we choose our vocation based on what we know is the clearly revealed will of God. And what is the clearly revealed will of God? It's the evangelization of the entire world. So here's my big question. If God's clearly revealed will is the evangelization of the entire world, why are two billion people still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time? It's not just that they don't believe in Jesus. They don't know there's a Jesus to believe in. Is it because God doesn't want them to know? No, we've already established that. So what's my conclusion? My conclusion is that the reason why 2 billion people have still never heard about Jesus is because Christians are out of God's will. And the scary, sneaky, subtle thing about it is that many of the things that Christians out of God's will are doing are in themselves perfectly legitimate. You know, people come to me and say, what's wrong with being an insurance salesman? That's not the question. The question is, why are you doing that? Is it because you've understood that God's will is to reach the whole world and you're convinced that that's the profession and that's the location where he can best use you to do that? I am convinced that if every Christian would stop and say, I only want to be in that place vocationally and locationally where God can best use me to get the gospel to the whole world, hundreds and thousands of us would have to change places immediately. Many would leave the comforts of the suburbs and move back to the inner city. Many of us would leave the shores of North America and take the gospel to the millions in other parts of the world. They're still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time. I was speaking to the Nurses Christian Fellowship at the Presbyterian Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 250 young professionals, most of them women, some men, all trained to be professional nurses. When I finished my talk, a beautiful young nurse came up to talk to me afterwards. Her name was Margaret. And when she got closer, I saw she was crying. And she said this, Dr. Murray, what's wrong with being a nurse? And, and I looked at her and I said, pardon me? She said, what's wrong with being a nurse? I said, 
I don't know. What's wrong with being a nurse? She said, well, you said we shouldn't be nurses. I said, I did? Well, not exactly. I said, oh, well, let's just sit down here and talk about it for a minute. We sat down, began to talk, and she told me her story. She told me that ever since she was a little girl, she always wanted to be a nurse, help people. And she pointed out to me that there's a shortage of nurses, you know. And I said, yeah, I, I understand that. And then she told me how she gave her heart to the Lord as a, as a young person. And after she became a Christian and a follower of Christ, she wanted to be a Christian nurse. I mean, how awesome is that? You know, not just help people, but help people in the name of Jesus. And she said, for the first time in my life, I've had to stop and ask myself this question. Is nursing the profession where God can best use me to accomplish his clearly re revealed will to get the gospel to the whole world? And I'm not sure it is. And that bothered her, and I was glad that it bothered her. Not because I didn't want her to be a nurse, but because I wanted her to be what she was going to be and where, because she was convinced that that's where God could best use her to take the gospel to the end. Are you following me? Well, as it turns out, Margaret and her husband Craig went to the Philippines, to the outer islands of the Philippines, to completely unreached peoples with the gospel of Jesus Christ, where, incidentally, she was able to skillfully use her nursing in the preaching of the gospel. So what is God's will? Here is God's will, according to God's word. It's the sanctification of every believer, and it's the evangelization of the entire world. And so as we finish our time this morning, I want to give you two prayers that I would like you to pray together with me out loud as prayers of conviction in our hearts. Here's the first prayer. It's the prayer of a believer who desires God's will. And let's start with the word Lord, and everybody say this together. I'll help you. Here we go. Lord, help me to always reject those things that do not contribute to my sanctification and to embrace those things that do. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? Now let me show you another prayer. The prayer of a believer who desires God's will. Let's pray this and start with the word Lord. Here we go. Lord, help me to always be in that place vocationally and locationally, where you can best use me to get the gospel to those who still have never heard of Jesus. Now let's look at the verse one more time. Ephesians 5.17, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let us pray. Our great God, we thank you this morning that your will is not something cleverly hidden that we are challenged to discover, but something clearly revealed that we are commanded to do. I pray for every brother and sister here in this room this morning that you will help us to intentionally, daily grow in our sanctification more and more like Jesus, making conscious decisions to reject those things which do not contribute to our sanctification and to embrace those things which do. And I pray, Lord, that St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church will be known as a church where the members each ask seriously, regularly, Am I in the place, vocationally and locationally, where God can best use me to make sure that the message of Jesus gets to the whole world? 
Hear our prayer, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.